0: With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. my spirit faints within me. You know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. Refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Psalm 142. Psalm 142 this morning. We've been uh, sitting a different psalm every Sunday all summer. And uh, this morning we find ourselves looking at Psalm 142. Do you have it open? What, what's the first line say? Some of these, a lot of these Psalms, they'll have kind of some, a heading to it that's directions uh, to the choir director, to whoever's going to perform this song or sing it. What does it say in the very beginning there? It says a mask of David, and then what? While well, he was in the cave. While well, he was in the cave. There's only two Psalms that, are, that start like this. This one and, and then number 57. And they seem to be somewhat parallel. But David's writing from the cave. Now, I don't think he was on vacation and he went splunking and all that sort of stuff. And he was just hanging out. And he thought, I'm going to write a praise to God while I'm here in the cave. Uh, I don't think that's the case at all. We're going to see that it's not. Um, but this morning, that's a really key and important piece. And, you know, I don't know about you, but there's times where God seems strange to me. Now Hear me before you think I'm a heretic, okay? I mean, strange in the sense that, why did he do it that way? Why did, why did this have to happen? Why, why did he take me down this path only to pull the rug out from under me? Or why did, why did that person have to get sick? Why, why does he do this to help me grow? Why, how did good things come? God is strange, Do you ever feel that way? Now, the reality is God isn't strange. We are. (laughs) He's strange to us because we're sinful and and we're messed up and we've rebelled against him. And so his ways seem strange to us at times. But at the same time, he is God. He's greater than us. He's eternal. He's infinite. And and I don't know about you, but my little pea-sized brain can't figure him out all the time. Especially when I face suffering and hardship. Now, I think David, when we find him in the cave this morning, I have a feeling he would probably agree with me in some sense of saying, God just seems really strange to me today. I don't quite, I don't quite get it. I don't, I don't know what he's up to. See, there's two times in Scripture in 1 Samuel where we find David in a cave. The first time is in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22. And he's in the cave of Adulam. The second time is two chapters later in, in chapter 24 where he's at En Gedi in one of the caves. And both times he's hiding from Saul who's trying to take his life. I think in this case it's probably that first one. And we'll get to that in a moment. We're going to trace our way through 1 Samuel. But I think it's probably describing the first of these two events. But before we pray, let me, let me throw this at you for a second. Imagine the contradiction for a guy like David who had been anointed by God to be king. God th- shows favor to him. David, you're the one. You're the man. You're going to be my king. You're the one after my own heart. And then he gets chased to a cave. <laughs> God, where are you now? That's where we find David today. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. I don't know. If you don't, you will someday. And so, maybe the, the teaching from God's word this morning would be an encouragement to you to stash away for that day. In any case, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the text together. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your word to us through him. Thanks for uh, guys like David in Scripture, Lord, who, um, even though he's, he's called to be a man after your own heart, you, you declared that he was, he was still incredibly sinful, he still failed. He, uh, he still went through some incredible trial and hardship. And Lord, why, on the one hand, we go, why? On the other hand, we go, well, good, I'm not the only one. So teach us what you're up to in those times this morning. Teach us how to pray to you and how to seek you in those times this morning. Holy Spirit, I thank you uh, that you choose to use me, and I pray you would again today. I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He'd he'd take your word, he would twist it, he would accuse us, he would uh, bring to remembrance uh, things that would would draw us away from Jesus. But instead, Holy Spirit, would you uh, work in power through your word today? Change us, make us more like Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Psalm 142, and as it starts out there, a mask of David while he was in the cave. we got to figure out how do end up in this cave, or this psalm isn't going to make any sense. I mean, if we really want to understand it, we got to find out what's David doing in the cave. So if you've got your Bible, you might want to open up to 1 Samuel. And we're just going to kind of skim through. We're going to give you the the fly-by view of 1 Samuel this morning and what's happening with David and and how he ends up in the cave. Well, first off, in in 1 Samuel chapter 16, David is anointed to be king. If you remember uh, earlier in Samuel, all of God's people, they're rebelling. They're like, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king. And God finally relents. And he goes, okay, well, then I'm going to give you what you want. And he gives him a king. And the guy's name is, do you remember? Saul. And King Saul, it says, was the most handsome man in all of Israel. He was ahead, head above everyone else. I mean, he looked the part of the king. He was If, if Disney drew a king, it was Saul. I mean, that's, that's what he looked like. He was, he was just this perfect specimen. But the problem is his outward appearance didn't match his heart. And eventually he rebels against God and turns from him, and God then turns from him. And instead, he goes after a new king, a man after his heart, not just one who looks the part. And he finds him in this boy who is a shepherd boy by the name of David. And he finds David out in the field, and he's anointed by Jesse to be king, or anointed by Samuel to be king, the son of Jesse. And in First Samuel sixteen seven, the Lord said to Samuel, "Don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I've rejected him." For the Lord sees not, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then David becomes uh, anointed to be the next king. And soon he ends up actually serving in Saul's court. Because Saul began to be tormented by an evil spirit. And the only thing that, that soothed this for him was uh, this shepherd boy by the name of David who would play his harp for him. And David becomes valuable and, and good in the sight of Saul. And then you get to chapter 17 in 1 Samuel, and maybe the thing that most of us remember David for, at least the first thing that comes to mind, there's a big, there's a big battle going on between Israel and the Philistines. There's a big valley in between them, and, and the Philistines have this guy named Goliath, and he comes out and he starts taunting him, and uh, he, he wants to fight, and he's like, send one man out to fight me, and whoever wins, wins the day. Everybody's terrified of this dude. And then David shows up with food for his brothers who are, who are in the army. And what's David like? He's like, hey, what's that, what's that guy speaking evil against God for? Remember, he had a heart after God's own heart. And he goes out, this little shepherd boy, five rocks, picks up his first stone, plunk right in the forehead. Goliath goes down. He cuts off his head, takes his armor, takes his sword, carries his head back to Jerusalem. And Saul's like, who is this guy? And they explain to him, that's the son of Jesse. And so Saul recruits me. Says, "You're not going back home, David. You're staying with me from now on." And in chapter 18, Saul starts having David represent him in battle, and David starts leading people out to war. And everywhere David goes, every battle he touches, he wins. You can read about it in First Samuel, the first few verses of chapter 18. And his success endeared him to all the people. But but Saul's a little bit crazy. And he's very much insecure. And David's success starts feeding into Saul's insecurity. If you have your Bible open in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, starting in verse 6, as they were coming home, so they're coming home from battle at one point, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out all, out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. But the next line really bothered him. Because then they sang, and David is ten thousands. And Saul becomes very angry, it says in verse 8. This saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and me, they've only ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day on. He was afraid of David. He was insecure. And now David was a threat to his throne. Little did he know God had already given it to David. He eyed David from that day on. His jealousy fed his insecurity. Be on guard, by the way, against your jealousy. It'll destroy you. It'll absolutely destroy you. It did Saul. He becomes more insecure. He begins to obsessively watch David, and he even tries to kill him. And in the next six verses of chapter 18, you find out that Saul uh, has this mean streak. Something happens, and he goes after David with a spear. And twice it tells us, the text tells us, that David evaded the spear as Saul tried to pin him to the wall. David's going, "Ah, maybe this whole anointed thing isn't the greatest thing in the world. But verse 16 says, all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And You get to, to 17, verse 17 of chapter 18, and Saul starts plotting again. How is he going to get rid of David? He, he's, just, he's just gone crazy. And, and so the first thing he says, well, I'll promise him, uh, one of my daughters, my daughter Merib, to be married to him. And then the Philistines will kill him. And you're like, how does that make sense? Well, it makes sense when you find out a little later that he pulled, withdrew his promise and instead gave him his younger daughter, Michal, and the, the bride price that he required of David for McCall was to kill 100 Philistines. Well, clearly, he's not going to be able to kill 100 Philistines by himself. Send him out. He's going to die, and then I'm free of this, this problem. My hands are clean, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. So David goes, Okay, that's, that's a good price, because McCall loved him, and I think David probably loved her. And so David goes out, and what does he do? He doesn't kill 100, he kills 200. And he comes back, and Saul starts to see the Lord is truly with David, and he gives him his daughter Michal. But he continues to be jealous and insecure. His jealousy and his insecurity would would doom him. See, it says in verse twenty eight and thirty through thirty of Sir Samuel eighteen. But when Saul when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So he was David's enemy continually. His jealousy and his insecurity did him in and, and his rebellion against the Lord. Well, you get to chapter 19. And one of the things I didn't mention that happened in chapter 17 is David became really good friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. They become great friends. And so you get to chapter 19, and Saul tells his son Jonathan and all his servants that they should kill David. Jonathan confronts his dad and asks him, "Why Why would you kill an innocent man that God has used to deliver us from the hand of the Philistines? And a long story short, Saul relents, and he brings David back. And then there was war again, verse 8 of chapter 19. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Now, if, if you're insecure like Saul and you're jealous like Saul, and the guy you're insecure before and jealous of, you bring him back and you send him out, and then all of a sudden he has great victory again. What's that going to breed in you? More insecurity, right? And, and we see more of Saul's insecurity. Here's how he responds to David's success in 1 Samuel 19.9. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and as he, sat in his house, as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. Here we go again. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if, if you don't escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So McCall let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. So David goes home to his wife, the guy who's trying to kill him. It's, it's his daughter, right? And she's like, listen, you got to get out of here or they're going to kill you. So she sneaks him out, lets him down through the window, and, and he flees off at night. And what she does, uh, I'll spare reading through all of it, but she takes an idol, and she puts it in bed and puts goat hair on it, covers it up, like this, there's this fake person sleeping in bed, and then Saul's um, henchmen come, and they're, they're ready to kill David, and they're looking for him. Hey, where's David? Oh, he's really sick. See, look, here he's sleeping here. Either she was really good at this, or they were really dumb, because they believe it. And then they go back to Saul, and they're like, he's really sick, Saul. He's really sick. And he's like, well, go get him, and just bring the whole bed to me, and then I'll kill him. And so they get there, they bring it back, and they find out it's, it's fake. It's not really David. It's just this idol with goat's hair and a wig on his head. And and he confronts his daughter, why'd you lie to me? And she gets paranoid and she says, well, David threatened to kill me. She lies. And now his wife's betrayed him too. And David's running. David escapes and he goes to Samuel at Ramah. And the two of them go live in uh, Nioth. Saul finds out and he sends people after him to try to find David. Well, his people get there. And when they get there, Samuel and the other prophets and David, they're worshiping the Lord and they're prophesying. And all the people that Saul sent, what do they start doing? The same thing. God's presence protected them. And all of a sudden, now they're prophesying. So Saul's like, all right, they didn't come back. Another group, you guys go. Same thing. They start prophesying. All right, they didn't come back. You guys go. A third group goes. They start prophesying. Nobody comes back with David. What's going on? So Saul himself goes. And Saul gets there. And he starts prophesying, and the presence of God overcame all of them and protected David. And in the night, then David slips away. He gets away uh, while they're all prophesying. And you get to chapter 20. He flees. David goes to his friend, Jonathan, Saul's son, and he tells him that his dad is trying to kill him. Jonathan says, no, he's not. He wouldn't try to kill you. I talked him out of that the other day, remember? David's like, yeah, but then later that, I mean, not long after that, he came after me with the spear again. And, and he came to my house. He tried to kill me there. And then he came and chased me to, to, to Ramah. And he tried to kill Ramah. He tried to kill me there. So Jonathan's like, all right, well, let's figure this out then. And they devise a plan in chapter 20 where there's a new moon festival coming. There's going to be a, a festival and a big meal. And uh, they sit down to eat. And Jonathan's like, listen, here's what, you, you stay away. You hide. And when we have the meal, then uh, when my dad notices that your seat is empty, he's going to ask where you are. And I'm just going to tell him that you went to Bethlehem to celebrate with your family. And uh, then I'm going to find out if if he really wants to kill you or not. If he's he's okay with that, then we know everything's good. If he freaks out, then we know he really is trying to kill you. So the first night of the festival comes, David doesn't show up. And Saul thinks to himself, "Uh, David must have made himself unclean, so he doesn't worry about it, doesn't show up. But the second night, David's not there he starts to question, okay, where's David? Hey, Jonathan, where's David at? Where's your friend David? Jonathan says what he said. He went to Bethlehem to worship with his family. Saul flips out. He cusses out his son, Jonathan, calls him uh, some names that you wouldn't want to repeat, and then takes the spear and tries to kill Jonathan. So Jonathan takes off, and the next morning, he and David had made a plan to meet on the third day, and here's how they were going to meet. Jonathan takes his arrows. You've heard this story, right? He shoots the arrows into the field. David's hiding out there. And and then Jonathan said, I'm going to send a boy after him. And if I tell him they're on this side, then, David, you come out, and you know everything's good. But if I tell him to keep going farther, then you know you need to get away, and you need to run. So that's exactly what happens. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And the boy ran and he shot an arrow beyond him. And When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. I don't think he was saying that to the boy. I think he was saying that to David. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from behind the stone heap and, and then fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan tells David to go in peace and that they would, they would always be friends, that God would protect their covenant together. So now David is totally gone. And he runs off, and he runs to a place called Nob, and he meets a guy, a priest there by the name of, a, uh, of Ahimelech. And Ahimelech, he goes to him, and he shows up alone, and he's like, "I need, I need food, I need uh, some weapons, I need something. I'm all alone." And he gives him the bread of the presence, and it, so David gets some food, and then he gets the gets Goliath's sword back. But it, while they're there, you find out that there's this guy named Doeg, or Doeg the Edomite, I think like Dog the Edomite, like Dog the bounty hunter. I don't know why. That's just how I read it. I'm weird. But this guy over here is that he sees David and he heads back to Saul. And we're going to find out later. He says, hey, I saw David down there. And Saul comes. He brings all those priests up and all the workers from Nob up and he, he slaughters all of them. But David from here takes the sword and then he runs to Gath. You know who's from Gath? Goliath. And David's plan is to go into Gath and hide out and just serve the king there uh, as a mercenary and just, just kind of be down undercover and I'm just going to hide out here for a while until things blow over with Saul and then I can go home. But the problem is the Philistines recognized him. They're like, hey, isn't that, isn't that David the king, the one who slaughtered Goliath? And so they bring him to the king. And what's David do? He's still running for his life, and now he's going to get killed by the Philistines. Great! So he starts acting crazy, and he, he starts saying gibberish. And it says that lets, he lets drool go down on his beard. And the king's like, Achish is like, "This guy's a crazy man. Let him. Why'd you bring him to me? Let him go." And so God again frees him and rescues him, and he goes. And then from that point on, in chapter twenty-two, verse one. That brings us up to the cave because right after he leaves from Achish, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. He takes off towards Bethlehem and he parks himself in a cave. He's been chased by his father-in-law, by the king. He's been betrayed by his wife. He's had to to leave his good friend, Jonathan. Uh, Even after all that he had done, he had been anointed king. He had saved Israel and he goes to the priest where God provides him with food. But then when he goes to Gath, he gets found out again. And again, they're trying to kill him. But God rescues him. And now he's running for his life. Do you see this? And you're like, why do we spend all that time? You've got to know that backstory to understand what's going on in David's heart as he writes this psalm. So we've established David's in the cave. And now as we get to the actual psalm this morning, I want to offer you a couple things to think about as we go through it. Okay? As I said before, as we were singing, that this psalm is great. It's it's perfect for those who find themselves in the midst of suffering and trial, for people wondering if God cares or if he even knows where they're at right now and what's going on in their life. So a couple things, just three things I want to bring to your attention, and then we'll dive into the psalm. Number one, one of the things we learn here is that God pays attention to your needs, and he hears you no matter where you are. God pays attention to your needs and he hears you no matter where you are. Think of all the places David had been. He had been in the field as a shepherd, as a little boy, as a young boy, a young man. He's on the battlefield facing Goliath. God was with him. He, he was in uh, Saul's uh, uh, court and serving him. God was with him there. He was running from Saul. He was uh, attempted to be The spirit at least three times we know of by Saul. Each time God was with him, he finds himself away now, totally away from everyone he knows, alone in a cave. God hears him and he knows his needs no matter where he is. Listen, you need to know that like David's prayers, your prayer, when you find yourself alone, no matter where you are, they they reach God's ear. He knows and he cares. It doesn't matter if you're on land, at sea, If you're in a cave, wherever you're at, God hears and he knows. Whether you're in church or in your car or at work, laying in bed at night, he hears and he knows and he cares. So if you find find yourself in a desolate cave this morning, you need to know God cares. It doesn't matter where you are. He knows and he cares. The second thing I want you to keep in mind as we go through this psalm is this, that God hears and answers your prayer no matter what you are experiencing. So not just wherever you are, but whatever you're going through, God hears and answers your prayer. Do you believe that? It's true. He does. First Peter, he tells us in chapter 5 to cast all your cares, all your anxieties on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. You're like, even the small ones that I think are kind of foolish, yeah, he cares for you. All means all. David had to be feeling and wondering if God really cared at this point before he writes this psalm. How did he end up here? He obeyed God. He sought him. He even honored Saul the entire time. Why did God allow this to happen? I mean, David had probably, well, maybe not. If it was you and me, right? We've we read we've read Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things to the good of those who love Him. We're called according to His purposes. So why is something bad happening? Well, we forget about the next line, verse twenty nine. Do you know that? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. God God hears you no matter what you're going through, and what you're going through may in fact be his exact plan for you to shape you into the image of his son. You ever thought about that? That's the third thing I want you to keep in mind. To make you like Jesus, God may choose to take you through some of the same things Jesus went through. If his number one priority is to make you like his son, the reality is he may have to take you through some of the same things he took his son through. He may have to take David through some of the same things he would take his son through. That includes loneliness. That includes abandonment. That includes hardship. God will work it for good. If you trust him and let him and cry out to him. But don't be surprised when you find yourself in the cave. And instead, let's look at Psalm 142 now and learn how do we pray and how do we seek God when we find ourselves there. Sound good? All right, let's look at Psalm 142. Three ways and there could be a whole lot more. I just, I narrowed it down to three for the, the sake of time. But three things I see in the way that David prays to the Lord in Psalm 142. Number one, he prays with honesty. Do you pray with honesty? You ever hear a little little child pray? When they pray, they pray with honesty, Right? And they pray, and they'll pray for uh, their friend and their friend's friend and their dog and their dog's kit, their dog's cat and all kinds of other stuff. It's just weird stuff, right? And then sometimes they'll say things that you're like, ooh, he saw that. <laughs> she noticed that. And they pray for, for you. and They pray with honesty. David prays with brutal honesty. Look at verse 1. He starts out like this. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. With my voice. David's crying aloud in the cave. He's crying aloud in the cave. Now, who is there to hear David? No one. He's in a cave by himself. Yet he cries aloud so that God would hear his voice. He pleads with God. He pleads with him for mercy. David's... Some translations, your translation might even say that he cries aloud, that he, uh, he appeals loudly to the Lord. What, what this tells me is that David's pouring out his heart and he's not holding back. My guess is that he's weeping. My guess is that it's loud. If you were on the outside standing near the cave, you, you'd hear somebody back in there and you'd hear the echoes of, of weeping and maybe even shouting and maybe anger and hurt. That's how David prayed. He cried aloud with his voice to the Lord. Look at it, verse two, I pour out my complaint before him. That's pretty strong language. He doesn't just just say, God, um, please, please help me with this. Saul's after me. Uh, it hasn't been a good day. Um, thanks for the food and the bread from the priest, but uh, they're trying to kill me, so thanks. He doesn't just pray like that, does he? No, he pours it out. I think at the top of his lungs, I think he's saying, God, where are you? <laughs> didn't you see what had happened? Uh, didn't you anoint me to be king? Wasn't that your plan? I thought it was your plan. Why am I here? How did I end up here? The king is trying to kill me. He's trying to, my father-in-law is trying to take my life. My wife betrayed me. They caught me at Gath. They wanted to take, take my head off just like I took Goliath's. Where are you? He pours out his complaint to God. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. David doesn't hold back. He's not self-conscious. He's not worried about what God thinks of him in the moment. He's making sure that God hears him. Spurgeon wrote this about this psalm. He said, an unuttered grief will lie and smolder in the soul till its black smoke smoke puts out the very eyes of the spirit. He said, we don't show our trouble before the Lord that he might see it, but that we might see him. It's for our relief that we pour out our heart and not for his information that we pray. David lets him know his trouble. And it's not like God didn't know. <laughs> it's not like God didn't know. But by, by expressing his heart loudly and vocally and with emotion, guess who David begins to see? His God begins to see is God. That's why you pour out your heart to the Lord so that you might see him. When my spirit, verse three, faints within me, you know the way, David says. When my spirit faints within me, in other words, that could be translated when I lose my courage, when I'm totally discouraged, Lord, you know the way, you know my way. And I think when it says, you know my way, it's the sense that God watches over his way. When I'm totally discouraged, God, you watch over my way. You, you guide my steps. You, you help me through. When nothing else makes sense, I know you're watching over me. In the path where I walk, David writes, he says, they've hidden a trap for me. Thankfully, God knows, though he's watching over his way. While David's discouraged, God knows and watches over him. You need to, he does the same for you and I. You could could pray this psalm this week and go, Lord, when my spirit is faint, you know my way. When I'm totally discouraged, you know my way. And even if there's a trap set for me, you know my way. You're in control. David pours out his heart and he sees that God is in control. But he keeps pouring out his heart. Look at verse 4. Look to the right, Lord, and see. There's no one who takes notice of me. Look to the right would be, uh, the person on his right would be the one who'd protect him and guard him and watch over him. And David's like, I'm totally alone. I don't even have a bodyguard with me. There's nobody here to protect me. I'm all alone. No refuge, he writes, remains to me. He had been to Nob to see Ahimelech, and then to Gath. Now he's in a cave. For months, if not years, he's been running from Saul. Then he really gets down. He says, no one cares for my soul. No one cares. David is incredibly alone. He feels completely abandoned. There's an old B.B. King song where he he sings, nobody loves me but my mama. And sometimes she can be jiving too. That's David. I've got nobody, Lord. I'm, I'm all alone. I've got no one. I'm here totally by myself, completely abandoned. Are you in that spot today? You find yourself in that spot where you feel all alone. Maybe you said to yourself, nobody really cares. Nobody really knows. Well, let me ask you, how did you get to that spot? David got to that spot simply by obeying the Lord. Maybe you did too. Maybe you, you obeyed the Lord and you trusted him and you, you walked with him and you made choices that were honoring to Jesus and yet you still find yourself in that spot. And you can empathize with David in a, in a big way. And you're going through a trial You're going through a trial. But maybe you've got to that spot because of choices you've made. You've made some sinful choices. you made some foolish choices. And now you find yourself suffering the consequence of those choices. And you find yourself all alone. And you say, no one cares for my soul. Well, either way, no matter how you got there, you should do like David and cry to the Lord for help. If it's a trial, if if by following God you found yourself there, a a trial is just something God allows me to go through to build my faith. That was David's case. Then I'm going to cry aloud to him and I'm going to let the Lord build my faith. But if it's a consequence, if it's something I did that caused myself to get here, then the first thing you need to do is cry aloud to the Lord and repent. Turn around. Turn back to Jesus. Now the truth of the matter is that for most of us, It's some messy combination of the two. (laughs) Where some of it's trial that I didn't really cause, and the other part, yeah, I, I totally messed up, and that's my fault. So I need to repent, and I also need to trust the Lord that he knows my way. He knows the way that I take. So pray with honesty. But then we see David not just praying with honesty, but I think praying with hope. See, after you pray with honesty, turn your eyes to Jesus and pray with hope. Look at verse 5. He says, I cry to you, O Lord. And I say this. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Now, David had just said, I'm totally alone. I've got nothing. Uh, Nobody loves me. But now suddenly he, he starts praying with hope. Because after pouring out his heart, he sees who God truly is. And he says, Lord, you are my refuge. You're my only hope. You're all that I have in the land of the living. You're my portion. The land of the living just means in this life. You're the only thing I have. And in this life, God is all that David had. In the cave, he's all that David had. Attend to my cry, David says, for I'm, bought, I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they're too strong for me. David's saying that he's in desperate, desperate need. He has hope that God can deliver him, that God is stronger than his persecutors. Do you have that hope? Do you pray with hope? Hope isn't wishy-washy. Hope isn't like, oh, I really wish God would fix this. No, hope is a confident assurance of things that you don't yet see. That's what it is. And so when I pray with hope, even if I don't, I don't get the situation, I don't get it, I look at who God is and I say, but I know that to be true, so I'm putting my hope and I'm fixing my aim on him. Amen? That's praying with hope. In Psalm 22, um, Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm, and you see uh, David in that psalm as well, but all of it parallels. You see Jesus quoting a lot of it uh, on the cross and in other places. And it begins like this, and I think we see an example of, of exactly what this is, praying with hope. In Psalm 22, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And then look what he does in verse 3. He says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. When you find yourself in a cave, you know know how you pray with hope? You quit looking at the cave and you start looking at Jesus. Right? A number of years ago, I preached this sermon called, called When God Throws a Curveball. Kind of that was the big idea. Did you ever play baseball growing up? Maybe you didn't, but let me explain to you how curveballs work. When I was a kid, in, in my town, it was a small town like Milford or Syracuse, and uh, you played baseball, and there was, there was T-ball, and then there was Pee-wees, and then there was minor leagues and major leagues, and you got into high school and all that good stuff. Well, right around minors, about fourth grade, fifth grade, uh, kids started throwing curveballs. And if you had never seen a curveball before, when you're standing at the plate and the ball's coming in and it's coming right at your face, what are you going to do? You're going to duck and get out of the way. The problem is is it's a curveball. You know what happens right as you duck out this way? The ball curves in this way right over the plate. And you're falling on the ground, and everybody's laughing, and the ump goes, strike one. What you learn to do is you start to see the spin on the ball, and you can see from the seams it's spinning, and it's going to curve in. So you know what every every good coach will tell you to do? Uh, Don't bail. Hold tight. Hang in there. Wait for it to break because you know that's what's going to happen. It doesn't look like it right now, but I'm telling you, that ball is going to turn and it's going to come across the plate, and then you're going to knock it out of the park. But you got to stay in there. You cannot bail. You have to believe what you know to be true, even if it doesn't look like it in the moment. That's praying with hope. When the curveball comes, you sit tight, you stay in the box, and you wait for it to break. Because you know what's true of your God, that he loves you, that he's faithful, that he cares. That even though the cave is dark and wet and nasty, it's just for a season. Your God is so much better. and Jesus is so much greater. Pray with hope. Pray with honesty and pray with hope. And then finally, don't forget, remember to honor God as you pray. See, finally, verse 7, David says, bring me out of prison. He compares it to a prison where he's at. But why? That I may give thanks to your name. Somehow, David, in pouring out his heart and all of his troubles, his focus was changed to look at Jesus. To look at the Lord and to say, bring me out of here, but not just for my good, but for your good, that I can praise your name. The righteous will surround me. He's remembering what he knows to be true. For you will deal bountifully with me. One of the best ways to get your eyes off the cave and onto Jesus is to start thanking him and honoring him and remembering what he has done for you. Remembering what is true of him in the moment. So I don't know if you're in a cave this week. David was a couple times. If you are, remember God hears you, whatever you're going through, wherever you're at, and that he may be taking you through this to make you more like Jesus. And then call out to him, pray with honesty, lay it out. Listen, God can take it. He already knows, he already knows, but lay it out. Don't let it fester in your own heart and become bitter. Lay it out to him and pray with hope. Remember what you know to be true and turn your eyes on Jesus. And honor him as you do so. Let me pray. Um, we'll sing, call it a morning, and, uh, and head out. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks uh, for your grace to us through him. And Lord, thanks that you, uh, David's not the only one who found himself alone and um, beat up and in trouble and hurting and wondering if, if you had forsaken him. Jesus, you did too. You can empathize with us when we find ourselves in those spots. And like David, you poured your heart out to God. You poured your heart out to the Father with emotion, and you laid it all out for him, even asking why he had forsaken you. But, Father, help us to pray with, not only with honesty but with hope, remembering all of your goodness to us, that this is for a season, and that in the end you plan to work out everything for our good if we would trust you. Father, I pray for those who've never trusted you this morning that they might put their faith in Jesus and turn to him in saving faith, repent of their sin and of their ways and experiencing your grace. We love you. Thank you for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen.